Derek Murray. Hey, man. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, the, the passage upon which the teaching is based is uh, Luke chapter 16 through 18. And I know just last week, uh, you know, Pastor Michael came and, and kind of put me in as the men's ministry leader. And I said, is this some kind of joke? You know, you give me two entire passage uh, chapters from Luke, art of to deal with. And uh, so then, you know, what, uh, an art of studying the Bible is, you know, you study it, you look for interpretations, you, you know, read it, you process it, you pray about it. And then in the very end, you look at commentaries. So uh, Jack Law, who's in charge of the teaching, um, gave us a commentary on Luke. So I opened the first page, read the first uh, sentence in the commentary he gave me, and this is what it said. In the task of detecting Luke's main train of thought, many feel this section is one of the most difficult in the whole gospel. And I said, what? And I circled it with my pen. I said, come on, man. Are you guys seriously giving me the hardest passage? Thanks a lot. Is this a test? No. Um, I, I've uh, had a great time studying this passage. And, uh, you know, it's talking about temptation. And sometimes I feel like the patron saint of lost causes when it comes to um, temptations. You know, I feel like Sisyphus. Remember, he was the... Um, supposed uh, um, Greek god who was uh, king of Corinth, and he was he cheated death twice, and so Zeus uh, cursed him to the curse of rolling a big boulder up a tall hill, and as soon as he got almost to the top, uh, that boulder would roll all the way back down to the bottom, and he was cursed to do this for eternity. Well, sometimes, man, doesn't it feel like that with temptations? You know, you you work on it. You, you try methods, you figure out a way to overcome temptation, and then bam, there it comes again. And you're like, again? Are you serious? You know, what, how in the world am I over, over going to come this? You know, because the devil is seriously powerful. You know, I, I hate the devil. <laughs> I don't know about you. I think it's maybe all right to hate the devil. Uh, I know he hates you, and I know he has a terrible plan for your life. And once you come to understand that, Maybe you can come to understand temptations just a little bit more. Because Jesus, you know, he knew, understood our struggles. He, he understands exact not struggles that we go through every day. And he's not, he's not surprised at all when we choose to sin. You know, he's not surprised when we choose the pleasures of life and say that they're going to give us more pleasure than knowing him intimately. He's not surprised. He's saddened. So... We have the task this day, this day of learning two chapters in Luke, and they, they seem like an in, incongruous grouping, but as, as you look at them deeper, you see like in, in Luke 1, 3, Luke said, I'm going to write an orderly account. So these weren't haphazard verses or chapters or paragraphs put in, in some random order. He had a real method to his madness, and so we're going to look at, you know, translation, interpretation, and application. Okay, you're going to have to trust me for some of that, but um, remember that all scripture has one interpretation and limited applications. So we, we must look at the scriptures for our answers. And what we're going to see today in this, uh, we're going to take Luke 17.1, 
in which uh, Jesus said, temptations to sin are sure to come. And we're going to look at this whole passage in light of temptations. And we're going to see first the problem of temptation, and then the purpose of temptation. And I'm going to leave you with a little homework to go away and find out what the power to overcome temptation is. So, you ready to get started? Let's... uh, first start with the problem of temptation. So um, I have a chart here for you and I have some fill in the blanks. You can fill them out as we're going through this. You know, the first thing I saw in Luke chapter 16, the story of the dishonest manager was the temptation for self-preservation at the expense of others. See this parable, it was an audit that, that Jesus was telling about how a manager dealt with his people because money became his greatest refuge and once he lost the protection of the master, he looked for that protection from those he cheated. So he went and he forgave most of their bills, gave them years wages back and he lived his life abusing people for his own benefit and then tried to craftily figure out how he could use them uh, to again get his protection. So the question I ask in this is, can God trust you and me with true heavenly wealth when he can't even trust us sometimes with fake earthly wealth? You know, where are we gonna run to when there's no wealth, no family, no health, no protection? Who do we fall back on? So I'll give you an objective truth. You know, God's wrath needs placating. A subjective truth. God cares more about restoring our relationship than we do. You know, God has an intimate stake in in us. The universal truth is that just because sometimes we don't care and we abuse people does not mean that God is going to abuse us. God infinitely cares about our relationship. So the key thought in this section is that, you know, sometimes the unrighteous people care more about their physical luxuries than we who claim to be spiritual care about our spiritual luxuries. We don't put as much effort into it as this dishonest manager did. So when we are seeking to be generous, It's not just looking and and hopefully seeing um, a need and then meeting it. No, being truly generous is seeking out those needs, is is discovering what needs are out there without having them come out in front of you. That's true generosity. You know, our generosity should mirror God's generosity, right? And, you know, God was infinitely generous with us. My comfort should not be my first priority just as comfort was not Jesus's priority at all. He had no respect for his own comfort, and that's what we need to mirror. So the second problem of temptation is creating theology based on personal decisions. And Jesus classified this in both um, wealth and in marriage. So the Pharisees loved money, we see in 16.4. And this was a misappropriation of loyalty um, that that it caused an erosion of their faith it caused an erosion of their concern for the rest of the law and so in particular 
Jesus brought up divorce. So, you know, God knew their hearts and he knows our hearts, but bad judgment is always detestable to God. Bad judgment is always detestable to God. And we, when we make choices based on our own circumstances, it's usually bad judgment. And we use it to justify warped theology. So Jesus used divorce and remarriage to show that the integrity of the Old Testament law has not changed in the new covenant. This new kingdom era has the same sort of morality. It matches the new kingdom exactly. So taking a vow before God and breaking it has always been detestable to God. God makes a vow to us and he never breaks it and he expects us to make vows to him and never break them. So, you know, because divorce and remarriage is so big in our culture, it doesn't mean that um, God's redemption is far removed from it. You know, we live in a world of sin. Taking a vow before God and breaking it is bad. That hasn't changed. God can't violate his vows. That hasn't changed. And the redemption of our souls, the salvation that he gives us through Jesus Christ is a divine marriage that can never be broken. And Paul said, well, marriage is an earthly representation of that. So don't break your vows. But we justify our theology by saying, I want to be happy. God wants me to be happy. Therefore, I need to make decisions that make me happy. When the first question we need to ask is what makes God happy, right? Theology to be our, needs to drive our decisions. Theology needs to be our first consideration because, you know what, when it comes down to it, theology doesn't care about your feelings. You know, Jesus said that, that divorce and remarriage is adultery. You know, the Bible says it. It doesn't matter if I believe it or not, but it settles it. The Bible says it. That settles it. And... You know, Jesus said this, and then he said, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. You know, um, you can say things like this, and maybe you'll lose friends. You know, I don't know, maybe I'll lose friends. But the Bible says it, and I just can't avoid that. You know, there's, but here's the, the greatest thing. There is no sin too great for that restoration process through Jesus Christ uh, to be too far removed. There is always a restoration because God knew we were sinful people. Um, in verse 16b, people are urged to forcibly enter the kingdom of God. You need to get in here by force. Try really hard because the new era of the kingdom is at hand and this redemption is nigh through Jesus Christ. So the third problem of temptation we find in uh, 16 19 through 31 and I label this the bourgeoisie and the proletariat or as I said in uh, high school the the borgiosi you know to my my teacher's uh, astonishment he could never get me to change my uh, my French accent so this is the question can people see acts of caring from a person who says God cares can people see acts of caring from a person who says God cares. You know, what's tragedy um, in this story about Lazarus and the rich man is not necessarily the wealth or the food or the clothes. It was that he was at the gate and he had all these sores on his bodies and the dog was licking his sores. This made him 
ceremonially unclean. It was detestable to Jews to have a dog lick your wounds. So this man was so far gone, it seemed, in this world. But it's, it's uh, you know, it's tragic how many chances we have to help other people that we squander. We see him sitting right in front of us and, and we do nothing. So I think this passage and the gospel itself drives us towards the opportunity to give compassion to someone else. It drives us towards compassion. I used to race motorcycles and great thrill on corners at 150 miles an hour, 180 miles an hour, it was a great thrill. But one thing that I learned and I would teach is target fixation. If you're going around a corner and you see a crash and you look at it, you're gonna hit it. I've seen it happen. I've seen people run over each other on the track. Target fixation is really bad in race car driving. However, in the Christian life, target fixation is what we need to do. We need to see a problem, we need to zone in on it, and we need to have compassion for that. That's exactly simple truth. Target fixation on those that have a need. That's what Jesus did. So don't look away, keep your eyes open. And Jonathan Edwards, I always like how he, he frames things in the English language. He spoke of God's natural work of redemption and his strange work of, of punishment. So this is what he said. God's natural work is mercy and it flows from his heart. God's strange work is punishment. It is a function of his attributes and has to happen for God to remain divine. But punishment is a cosmic shame. Number four, temptation, non-forgiveness. This is uh, in the beginning of chapter 17 and it's about judging and grudging because the truth is that we always see in scripture when you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. God is the judge, not you. You can't hold a grudge. Re religion, Christianity, is not a private pursuit. It is a family affair. And when we are a Christian, we need to look and act and have the same DNA as our Father in heaven. Therefore, we need to practice ultimate forgiveness. Um, you know, in accountability for keeping relationships and rebuilding relationships is the responsibility of the church. It is our responsibility to do that. It's not a passive responsibility. It's an active responsibility to rebuild relationships through forgiveness. Um, it talks about, uh, you know, how it's, it's quite spiritually immature to not forgive someone. Just immature. It's Christian immaturity if you can't forgive, if you hold a grudge. Because there you're doubting the very theology of who God is and what he has done for us. So how about rebuking someone else? Jesus talks about correcting other people. Uh, that's never easy, um, but we're expected to do that too. And no matter how their response is, we're supposed to forgive them. It's our responsibility to restore relationships, just as it was Jesus's responsibility to give us the ultimate restored relationship in God. That's how we need to act. Author said this, he said, John Flavel, another uh, Puritan author said this, he said, remember that God in whose hands are all creatures is your father and is much more tender than you are or can be even of yourself. God is a tender God and he wants us to be tender to others as well, even more tender than we can be to ourselves. So the fifth temptation is malaise of faith. 
uh, the disciples were like, ah, Lord, we don't even know how to do this. Increase our faith. And if you notice in the text, there's an exclamation point. The disciples, they knew how hard it was to take care of the needs of others, to forgive them, to give them money. Like, this is like really difficult stuff. And so they said, Jesus, please increase our faith so we have even a clue about the activity that that you are up to because we don't even understand it. And Jesus said, even a small amount of faith can do amazing things. It can change creation like, for instance, throw a tree into the sea. You know, I mean, that's the kind of God we serve. And even a little bit of faith um, is what we need to know that God has infinite power. We've got to rest on that infinite power. Um, otherwise, we will have that malaise of faith. So number six, abuse of grace. This is servants not doing their part. You know, our attitudes in following God's commands should not be out of duty, but out of love. Okay? Our obedience should be not out of duty, but out of love. However, um, obedience is not for merit obedience is out of love it is part of our duty to do what God told us to do because we love him Um, we can't pick and choose those areas to obey because that leads us into temptations right we have to not pick we have to take exactly what God says and if we're not doing that that's an abuse of a relationship And we're told not to abuse any relationship, but especially our relationship with God. Take take marriage, for instance. Um, Soft abuse might be apathy instead of interest. Hard abuse might be hitting instead of hugging, right? But when we abuse our relationship with God, we, we might know he'll never leave us, but we don't really live like it. We just don't believe what he says. We want to have negotiation with God to do the things we want to do on our terms. But uh, Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Um, Servants, they need to do their part. Um, If you don't do it, it's going to just do it. It's for your own good, you know. Um, If you don't do it, it's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. However, we we have this idea of grace, and we believe it's, it's... Uh, a cheap grace, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, there's cheap grace, there's costly grace. Cheap grace is, I quote, uh, grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus living and incarnate. Costly grace is treasure hidden in the field for the sake of a man will go and sell all he has to obtain it. So number seven, as we're getting through these, unthankfulness. So this was about the real problem of leprosy. You know, to a, the Samaritan leper was doubly bad because the Jews didn't want to deal with lepers because they should be outcasts. They didn't want to deal with Samaritans, so they should be outcasts. So because they were all beyond hope. There was no hope for the Samaritan leper. And these guys came to Jesus and they said, have pity on us with an exclamation point again. And, uh, you know, no one has turned away from Jesus. This, this kingdom that Jesus is presenting is all-inclusive, no matter of your background, no matter of your spots. Leprosy was always signifying sin, so these were double sinners, Samaritans, lepers, and Jesus said, my, my kingdom's all-inclusive. Um, lepers were isolated, cast out, condemned, and, you know, to understand isolation is, is, if you understand what isolation is, 
The photo negative is the salvation that God provides for us, the relationship that God provides for us, the exact photo negative. Um, you know, it's always comforting in Hebrews when we see that we don't have a high priest who doesn't sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our spots, and, and he still loves us, and he, he feels sorrow for him, but he totally sympathizes with who we are as people. So number eight, um, no imminency, living for today rather than for eternity. I call this like Christian deism. There was a doctrine in the Puritans called Pranctum Salutis. It's a doctrine um, of the covenant of redemption. This is what the triune God agreed upon in time past. Salvation is past, present, and future. This is this doctrine. Um, and I think what Jesus is saying with it, do you believe in heaven? Well, live like it for heaven's sake. Come on, man. Why, why are you living for today? Um, you know, most people uh, live out of fearlessness. They um, live as Christian deists. doesn't change their life at all. Believe in God, but it really doesn't change their life at all. That's the majority of churchgoers. And Jesus is like, man, don't live, don't live for today. So number nine, the last temptation we will look at is discouragement over injustice. And this is the unjust judge. So I asked myself a question. If bad leaders can make good decisions, can, a good, can we trust a good God who can never make a bad decision? So if bad leaders can make good decisions, can we trust a good God who can never make a bad decision? That's what this, this story is all about because there's this unjust judge, this woman comes, she nags him and finally he's like, I'm sick and tired of you. Would you just go away? I'll give you what you want. And it's not telling us to nag God. It's not telling us that God gets annoyed with us. It's saying, your God is so good. Why don't you just ask him? He's the just judge. He actually in, invented justice. <laughs> he is the God of justice. He's the creator of justice. And in the end, everything will show his justice. Trust him, you know, just go to him and trust him because he is the God of justice. Um, and, uh, you know, I close with this because uh, they gave me two chapters. <laughs> I can only get through the problem of temptation, but um, you have blanks. And what I plan for you to do is to take those verses home with you and, and apply them, you know, in, in section three, um, the power over temptation. You know, read those, study, maybe do them in your small groups and, uh, you know, I think that it'll be valuable for you to figure out on your own how to overcome temptation. Because I think we know all the answers, but I think it's a great discovery process if we look in the Bible ourselves. So I, I end with this, you know, temptations are many. But Hebrews 5.2 says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. And I tell you what, my friends, we're all ignorant and wayward at times, but he can deal gently with us. He, he loves you. Um, he, he wants you to be able to overcome temptation, but he understands when you don't. There's grace for that. But, but look, man, let's, uh, let's strive towards excellence for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, we're uh, um, going to dismiss for our groups right now. I'm going to say if you don't have a group, if, you, if this is your first time, is there anybody the first time here this week? Um, no? Okay, so there's questions. Oh, if you have a group to go to? Okay, excellent, excellent. Don't want to put you on the spot and make you stand up and say anything. Um, but yeah, he's got a group to go to. Answer the questions. Um, maybe go through the color of our ears, right? Um, get real. I mean, we don't come here just to tickle our ears, right? Um, yeah, 
we, we have another new one? Yeah. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm so hard of hearing. I didn't hear you say, but everybody else did, so. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we're, we're about over time. Uh, I'm sorry, Keith. I, I, um, but, uh, man, this is a great, great time to come here this morning, isn't it? It's time to get here and get real. And this isn't, like I said, just to tickle our ears. This isn't to hear funny jokes. This is to dig deep into the word of God and to change our lives because it is so worth it. Um, God is not willingly afflicting the children of men. That's in Lamentations 3.33. He wants us to prosper. And this is how we do it. Iron sharpens iron. So let me pray for us and we'll go to our groups. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I... uh, Lord, I just thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you that as the God of of redemption, the God of justice, the God of all mercies, Lord, there's always mercy for the miserable uh, and grace for the guilty. Lord, I thank you that your mercies just abound. And Lord, even when we do fail, you you forgive us. You understand. Um, You know, your son went through it all, suffered every temptation. Uh, so that he could be our great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. But Lord, help us in our weaknesses. Help us to be strong. Help us to rely on you. And Lord, I pray as we discuss this with our brothers um, in our separate groups, Lord, just uh, bless our table talks. And Lord, bless each one here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.